0: What a great way to start your day. Thank you, worship team, for that amazing time of bringing us before the throne. It's beautiful to be able to do that. Imagine if you started every day like this. My life would be very different if I started every day in corporate worship like this. I'm just so grateful to be here. I will often say, if, if your goal is to be criticized, become a referee for youth sports Or lead worship and it's understandable people feel passionately about those two things their children's sporting career takes on massive importance for people but so does worship we feel deeply about what moves us and what helps us approach God very often people will find the music they like most oriented around times God worked most in their lives And so if they were really becoming close to God in the 70s, well, music from the 70s is what they're going to like. And 80s, 90s, 2000s, whatever it is, there's something that speaks to us when God has worked, and it's very personal, becomes very personal. And people have a lot of stylistic differences and personality differences. And, And so being criticized is part of being a leader in general. But I would say especially... Being criticized is part of being a worship leader. And so my question for you is, how are you with criticism? Some criticism we need to listen to and take to heart. Well, I'd say we have to listen to all criticism, but some we need to listen to and take to heart and even make significant changes in who we are and how we do something. But some criticism we just need to let roll off our backs. And so... The bottom line is humble confidence. If you're going to be a leader of any kind, and if you're going to be a Christian, you need to find this elusive ideal of humble confidence. It's sort of easy to be arrogant. It's sort of easy to be self-loathing. But to have true humility which isn't thinking little of yourself that's not what humility from a christian perspective is it's not thinking you're just horrible c.s lewis said that true christian humility is not um, thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less it's not beating yourself up it's not self-loathing it's recognizing that god has made you in his image And you are a profoundly beautiful, unique creation of God. And when you look in the mirror, you should go, not for the reason you may do that sometimes, but because you're an awesome creature. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, when you look at other people too, for that matter, and when you look at creation, you realize the Lego movie was right. Everything really is awesome. And you're able to look at everything, including yourself in the mirror, and be in awe of who you are, but you realize that that's all donated dignity. You didn't come up with who you are by yourself at all. You're not self-created. You're not self-sustaining. And so humble confidence is the result of knowing who God is and knowing who he's made you to be, a unique creature in his image that images him and reflects his very glory And it's all given to you. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? Everything you have is a gift. So that's this humble confidence we're able to come to. So that means we can go into what God calls us to as leaders and trust who he's made us to be and that he's given us an opportunity to help God's people worship him and we can be confident that if he's brought us to this, he will enable us to do it. He will provide He's not going to fail. What a great list of songs we were singing this morning. I just was so encouraged by that. And isn't it beautiful to sometimes the worship? I have a friend, dear, dear friends, and uh, it, it, they're, they're from way back in graduate school. We knew them in our 20s, and we just have an amazing relationship. They live in Florida. We live in Southern California. But it's those relationships where you'll go months without even talking and as soon as you start talking or seeing each other, you pick up right where you left off and you just hit the ground running like no time has gone by. And they're serving Jesus in Florida. Well, last week they got a diagnosis that, that Carol probably just has a, a week or two to live. And I, I wasn't just leaning on the truths we were singing this morning for myself. I was doing it for Mark and Carol Clark in Florida, our dear friends. And, and to affirm the things we believe is at the very heart of who we are. What we've been singing about this morning, what you lead other people to affirm in what we sing, is the stuff of our faith. It's, it's not just fun music, although it's that. It's the stuff of our hope. It's the stuff that we are able to deal with life in light of when you lead worship you're just not trying to create a fun experience you're you're giving people the truths of god's word in a powerful way that gets into their souls that gets them through a terminal cancer diagnosis like i said last night it couldn't be more sacred or serious what we do when we lead people into the truth of God, in the presence of God. In a very real way, every time you lead worship, you're helping people get ready to die. And you're helping them get ready to live every day of their lives in faith and hope. Increasingly, in spite of the fact that we live in probably the most comfortable and convenient society that's ever existed, people's souls are still ravaged. Sin still reaps a harvest. Every day, I, I feel like the last couple of years especially have just brought to the surface our weakness and our sin in ways we never would have seen otherwise if it weren't for the challenges in our culture we've been able to see. And who is going to help us in these times? It's going to be the leaders of God's people who aren't just in front of us showing us what amazing chops you have, as cool as that is and believe me i i worship god just watching the, the 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 talent god has given these musicians i do i worship god it's not some distraction for me i mean i was loving just the mean mug the drummer what's the drummer's name where is it jonathan, J- jonathan. He, he got this mean mug he's he's going to war right when he's drumming right and and it's just a beautiful thing to To affirm these truths of God with a look like you're going to war because we are. Every time we worship, we go to war. Worship is one of the primary weapons of spiritual warfare. Do you know that? Satan hates what we've been doing for the last half hour. He hates it. It's a stench to him. And it's a pleasing aroma to God. And so we actually build a fortress around God's people when, they lead, when, when we lead them to true worship. And so we've got to do this as people who know who we are so that when criticism comes, our identity isn't on the line. When, when people unfairly or fairly criticize us, it doesn't wreck us. It doesn't destroy us. We're still able to lead in humble confidence. Knowing who we are is absolutely essential. Last night we talked about being people who have earnest hearts that seek God. This morning I want to talk about being people who have our identity in Christ. Who know who we are. If we know who we are in Christ, if we can really internalize what we've been singing this morning we will have the kind of humble humble confidence that gives us the ability to be courageous, compassionate leaders of God's people. So I want to focus this morning on just a few texts of Scripture that show us who we are. And I'm sure these are familiar to you if you've been around the church any length of time. But if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about who we are in Christ, but first it talks about who we were before we were in Christ. If I had to summarize the entire New Testament with just two words, if I I was limited to just two words, they would be en Christo, in Christ. Being in Christ is the, the world changing reality and identity that we are able to have through saving faith in Jesus, and so many of us are true believers, but we aren't truly grasping, understanding, and internalizing what it means to be in Christ. You know William Randolph Hearst. You know he was at, 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 for a while. He was the the Bill Gates of the world he was the wealthiest man in the world for a long time and Hearst castle i don't know if you've ever been there up not far from where you guys live yes you san simeon people san marino people yes right so you've seen those elephant seals and you've seen Hearst castle looming right yeah they're kind of nasty at times but amazing but Not Hearst Castle, the Elephant Seals, but uh, William Randolph Hearst had one of the biggest and, and for a while the largest art collection in the world. And he became aware of some sculptures that he wanted in his collection from ancient Greece. And so he sent one of his assistants all over the world trying to find out where these sculptures were because he wanted to acquire them for his collection. And after months of searching, his assistant came back and said, Mr. Hurst, I found the sculptures. He said, you did, where were they? And he said, in your collection, you already owned them. (laughs) He had so many pieces of art, he didn't even realize that he owned these things he wanted to have. He already owned what he wanted. And as Christians, I think so many of us live our lives seeking what we already have. If you've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus in saving faith, you have everything you could ever want or long for. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2 about the human condition. Ephesians 2, 1. And you, please take this to heart, what we're about to read. Even if you were raised in a Christian family, even if by God's grace he insulated you from where your sinful heart could have and would have taken you otherwise, please take this to heart. Not by nurture, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Did you hear that? It couldn't be worse than it is. And we're all in this together. No one needed Jesus to die for him or her more than anyone else. We're all in this together. No temptation has seized you that isn't common to man. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We're all equally in this fallen nature category. We've equally inherited this sinful nature, and we equally need a savior. And it's as bad as it can be. It says we were dead. It doesn't say we were knocked out or unconscious or in a coma or it doesn't say that we were anesthetized or just in need of a little more time or a little more education and if only we had better parents. No, it says we booted up sinful and deserving God's judgment. Children of wrath. Our only inheritance was the wrath of God. It's as bad as it can be. And if God hasn't brought to you a deep and profound sense of your own sinfulness, you can never lead other sinners well. You know, I, you might find this strange, but I have a document on my computer of people I want to meet in heaven in the order I want to meet them. Is that strange? And it, it's gone through alterations through the years, additions, and I move people around on the list. Now, of course, Jesus is at the top, but There may be a waiting list. I don't know how it's going to work to talk to Jesus, but but for a long time I had at the top of my list people like Peter and Paul and Isaiah and Moses. But do you know through the years as I've understood what it means to be a Christian, as much as I still am so looking forward to seeing those great saints of the faith, do you know who's been added to the list and been moving up the list? people whose names we don't even know, but are held up in the Bible as profound examples of people who simply know this. Because of Jesus, they have been forgiven much. Like the woman. All we know about her, we don't even know her name. She's just the sinner woman from the city. (laughs) And she comes in in the midst of religious, moral people. And she gets at the feet of Jesus and she washes his feet with her tears and with her hair. And Jesus holds her up in the midst of all these religious people who don't understand how much they've been forgiven or at least how much they need forgiveness. And he says, She knows. She knows that she desperately needed me and she leaves forgiven. She's been moving up my list. The one leper who came back and thanked Jesus for healing him when the others didn't. I want to meet that man. The widow who gave everything she had in the offering and no one noticed because it barely made a noise. We don't even know she knew Jesus pointed her out in that scene. He says to his disciples, hey, see that woman. See that woman, she gave more than anyone else here. She gave everything she had. I want to know what was going on in the hearts of those people. We don't even know their names, but they knew how much they had been forgiven. And at the heart of being a Christian, at the heart of being a leader especially, is someone who is a believer in Jesus and knows deeply that you have been forgiven much. You know, we sing amazing grace. But a lot of times it's not all that amazing. Because we compare ourselves to other people, and you know, we're doing pretty well. I think that's the main reason reality television exists. So we can see people who are worse off than we are and feel good about ourselves. You know, you watch hoarders, and you watch these people's homes, and you say, my house is a mess, but it's not like that, right? Or you you watch these reality shows, and you see how jacked up these people's lives are, and you say, yeah, I got some messed up relationships, but nothing like that. We like to compare ourselves and feel like we're doing pretty well, but we've got to see Almighty God for who He is, and then we'll see ourselves for who we are. That's why what we said last night about going on a character of God hunt all the time. I want to know who God is more each day. And so we, we go and we find out who we are, and we read the Scriptures, and we say, wow, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. All I had come to me was the wrath of God. That's all I deserved. And in an entitlement culture like we live in, In a consumer culture where we're constantly told we're not getting all the good things we deserve. I think every day I get something in the mail, usually from a credit card company, that tells me I'm not getting all the things I deserve. And I look at it, and before I tear it up and throw it out, you know what I say? Thank God I'm not getting what I deserve. Because I deserve hell. And if you can't find anything else to be grateful for from day to day, start with the fact that you're not going to hell. I know it's not popular to talk about that concept these days, but it's all over the Bible. Jesus talked about it all the time. We have been freed from the wrath to come. And when you to help people prepare to die, one of the callings we have is to help them flee the wrath to come. Judgment day is coming. You know, we don't talk about this much these days, but the Bible talks about it a lot. And Jesus talked about it a lot. And we need to help people get ready for Judgment Day every time we lead worship. We need to help them store up treasures in heaven and not on earth. We need to help them get ready for the great throne they will stand in front of one day. So we were dead, but thank God for verse 4. Thank God that's not the end of the story. Look what it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, listen to all these adjectives describing these nouns, rich in mercy, great in love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, not after we had made ourselves alive or made ourselves lovable or made ourselves worthy, but when we were dead God made us alive. Do you hear how God is taking the initiative? God is doing this, made us alive together with Christ. Think of his resurrection, gloriously, victoriously, coming out of the tomb, and we go with him out of the tomb of death by faith and union with him. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your identity, your position by faith is in Christ now. So then in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see here often Jesus is mentioned here and being in him is the bottom line in who you are now. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we're His workmanship created, here it is again, in Christ Jesus. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a glorious identity. I hope when we read these words, they're pouring over you and you're basking in them and resting in them and finding who you are more in them. Every day of our lives is a battle to find our identity in Jesus and you'll never find your identity in Jesus if you don't find Jesus. And you don't primarily find your identity in Jesus when you primarily seek to find your identity. Finding your identity in Christ is the result of primarily finding Christ. I think you can can turn a pursuit of finding your identity in Christ into a very narcissistic, self-centered thing and you actually miss it. I think this is one of the reasons so many Christians struggle to truly have humble confidence and find their identity in Christ. Because we have a way, because of our sinful natures, we still battle of turning everything, even our religion, into a pursuit of self rather than a pursuit of God. There is a radical anthropocentrism, a radical human-centeredness to American Christian religion. We've turned it into a marketing thing. We've turned it into something that's all about us. And God exists to be there for us, not the reality that the Bible teaches that we exist to glorify God. We're part of his story. We don't incorporate him into ours. He's not even an important part of our story. We are part of his glorious story. And so incorporating our perception of ourselves into a radical God-centeredness, which isn't radical when you read the Bible, it's just how it is, is what we've got to be about. You can't be too focused on Jesus. You can't be too focused on who God is or too focused on glorifying him. Finding your identity in Christ is a byproduct of finding Christ. And then you will believe he really is sufficient to give you everything you have. And when you believe him and take him at his word, that when you trust him, you find in him the way, the truth, and the life. And the most glorious and beautiful object of your faith that it could ever find. Our lives have to be filled with the consuming passion of knowing Christ and making him known, not making a name for ourselves. You want to know if Jesus is being exalted? You've got to ask the question, is a, is a person being exalted in this ministry? Is a ministry being exalted? Is our way of doing things being exalted? Or is Jesus being exalted? It's, it's not wrong to talk about strategy. It's not wrong to talk about mission statements and all these things we want to do well. It's there's not wrong, obviously, to get better at your craft as a musician or a worship leader or a leader of any kind, of course, devote yourself to doing that well. Go to these breakouts. Become the most proficient, skilled steward of the talents God's given you you possibly can. That's just called being fruitful and multiplying with the gifts God's given you. But if at the heart of it all is in a quest to know Jesus and the enjoyment of those talents and gifts he's given you, if in leading, if your goal isn't to help people see and savor and glorify Christ, you're missing the whole point. You can be the best musician the world's ever seen and corrupt from the inside out and not lead people anywhere in a good direction. I got to tell you, the last two years very close and personal to me and broadly in the, in the Christian culture, I feel like the past two years has been filled with people not being who I thought they were. And walking away from the faith when they've been leading people supposedly in the deeper faith all along. Coming out on Instagram as no longer a Christian or even now working to oppose Christianity. All these deconversion, deconstruction stories. And as I read these testimonies, I love the testimony we were singing this morning of finding who we are in Jesus. But when you read these testimonies of people who are walking away from the faith, they always talk about, I can't handle Christian sexual morality anymore. I just can't, I can't do it anymore. I, I can't handle the doctrine of hell anymore. I can't handle narrow, hypocritical Christians anymore. It's always these typical things you hear. Do you know what I've never heard once? I've never heard this once. I'm walking away from the Christian faith. I'm not a Christian anymore because I don't find Jesus beautiful anymore. I've never heard anybody say that. They don't say, I don't find Jesus truthful anymore. I don't find Jesus glorious anymore. And I want to ask, well, what were you in it for in the first place? What was your Christian faith all about anyway? Was it just some subculture you were a part of? Was it just something that made you feel good for a while? Was it something that gave you social capital? Why were you a Christian in the first place? Being a Christian is fundamentally this. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus and never being the same. I have a friend who tried to walk away from the Christian faith for all those reasons I just mentioned. And about 18 months later, he came back to me and Billy said, you know what, I realize I I can't walk away from the Christian faith because it's not just what I believe. It's not just a subculture I'm part of, it's who I am. I know God's made me a new creature in Christ. I know he's completely changed me from the inside out because I've seen Jesus And I can't walk away from him because being a follower of him is who I am. And so we've got to find our identity in who we are in Christ. And that starts with finding Christ. And so we need to know who we are in Jesus. We need to have confidence and security and humility that comes from that. Did you hear what we have in Jesus in this passage? He's rich in mercy. Do you know the first lie we were ever told about God? God. That he's cheap. You realize that? Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan comes to him. And what does, he, what does he basically say? So you can't eat of all the trees in the garden, huh? God's holding out on you. He's cheap, isn't he? And Eve calls him on it and says, no, actually, we can eat of all the trees in the garden, just not one. And he says, mm-hmm, you need that one. See, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's holding out on you. He's a cheap God. You better fend for yourself. You better go make it happen for yourself. You better take matters into your own hands. That's what the sin problem basically is, not trusting God because we don't think he's either wise or good or compassionate or loving or powerful or whatever it is about his character we doubt. But he is good, and he is lavishly giving us everything we need by grace through faith according to his kindness. And so we need to know who we are. We need to know that we are forgiven people. That's the first thing. Your sins are forgiven. A clean slate has been taken away. He's cast away your sin. We need to know that we are righteous in his sight. We need to know that we are adopted by him. Listen, listen to these verses. He made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? Uh, listen to 2 Corinthians 5.12. We are not again commending ourselves to you. Worship leaders, you need to be able to say this with the Apostle Paul. We are not again commending ourselves to you but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, not in the heart. Appearances can be deceiving. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. What is the core of your ministry? It's got to be your character, it's got to be your perception of God, not your impressive charisma or talent. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, we find in Christ forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In him we have the righteousness of God himself. And we're adopted into his family. Listen to Romans 8.15. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself witnesses with our spirit that we're children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. You're completely forgiven. I believe Satan is completely happy if you believe you're 98% forgiven. I do. If He can just think, get you to think you have 2% of your sin to still work off. He wins. You are completely forgiven. You've been declared as righteous as Christ himself. You are loved, as we were singing this morning, as much as you can be. He loves you as much as God is capable of loving, and that is infinitely and overflowingly loving. And you have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We lack nothing we would ever desire when we find who we are in Christ. Listen to Martin Luther. A man with confidence can boast in Christ and say, Mine are Christ's living, doing, and speaking. His suffering and dying, mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Just as a bridegroom possesses all that is his bride's and she all that is his. For the two have all things in common because they are one flesh. So Christ and the church are one spirit. That's who we are now. That's who we are. And we've got to realize this. We're not just forgiven. You ever seen that bumper sticker? Christians aren't just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect just forgiven. Have you ever seen that? I get what it's after. It's after a perceived self-righteousness among Christians that is trying to combat. And I get that. But I feel like it sort of emaciates who we are. We're not just forgiven. Do you hear what we're righteous and holy and blameless in God's sight and co-heirs with Christ and the receivers of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? We've got all we... I mean, that would be a big bumper sticker, but it'd be worth putting all the way around your car because that gets at who we are much better. And like I said, Satan will get after you and accuse you of all kinds of things. I have a friend who um, was, was, was almost murdered. A man tried to murder him, and he was maybe a minute from dying after being stabbed four times. And the EMTs got there and saved his life. He, he wouldn't have lived more than a minute or two at, at the most. And they saved his life. But four years after the attempted murder, I went to his trial. I went to his trial. And, and the defense attorney for the man who tried to murder him tried to portray my friend Andre, as someone who initiated the attack, which wasn't true at a party, and was much bigger than, than the man who tried to kill him. And so he, he said the man did it in self-defense because he was terrified, terrified of Andre. And before Andre became a Christian, he, he was not a good person. <laughs> um, and, and there were police records to show for it. But now that he was a Christian, he was able to sit on the witness stand. And as he was cross examined by the defense attorney, trying to turn him into a monster, this defense attorney, for two days, accused him of all kinds of things some things that were actually true, and some things that weren't. And it was amazing to see this man who finds himself in Christ not get defensive. Not not become filled with shame, but just simply say, yep, I did that. And it's not who I am anymore. And some of the things were accusations that weren't true, and he was just able to say that's not true. And he said, that's not who I am anymore because I'm a Christian now. And I'm a different man. I'll never forget that scene. Do you know what Satan's called in the Bible? The accuser of the brethren. He'll get on you for anything he can. Something that happened way back in high school. I know people who battle their entire lives, something they did in high school that Satan just brings up all the time. Before God, we can stand forgiven and righteous and adopted, and we can say to Satan what Charles Spurgeon tells us to tell him. I know what the devil will say to you. He'll say you're a sinner. Tell him you know you are but for all that you're justified. He'll tell you of the greatness of your sin. Tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will tell you of all your mishaps, your backslidings, and your offenses, and your wanderings. Tell him, tell your own conscience that you know all that, but that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and although your sin be great, he is quite able to put it all away. He's not going to fail, and I love it when Katie, 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 was singing this morning, he won't. She was singing that with conviction, helping us to sing it with conviction. He won't fail us. And when Satan accuses you, you can count on that. You can count on him not failing you and changing his mind about the depth of the forgiveness and righteousness and adoption that is yours in Christ. And we've got to work at this. We've got to wake up in the morning knowing we're in a spiritual warfare and Satan wants to erode your confidence in Jesus and what he's done for you and how completely you are in Christ. He'll get on you for anything and work you over all day long. And we've got to go to war with that battle. So I teach theology. I teach this stuff for a living. I'm convinced because God knows how much I need to remind myself every day of these things. He just gave me a job where that's what I do. Maybe that's why you're a worship leader. Because you're so frail that unless you reminded yourself every day, you'd wander like crazy. (laughs) Maybe that's why He's got you doing what He's doing. I know that's one of the big reasons he's got me doing what I'm doing. I need to remind myself every single day. So I was in the middle of teaching this very stuff to my students at Biola one day. And I was out for a run in my neighborhood, and one of my neighbors drove by. And I waved, and he drove by. And after he drove out of sight, I realized that when I saw him coming, I started running faster than I had previously been running. And when he drove out of sight, I slowed down again to the previous pace I had had before I saw him. I thought, what was that all about? Well, you know what it's about. (laughs) That's why you're chuckling. You've done the same thing in all kinds of ways. Maybe you're not concerned that people are impressed by your fitness level. And if you knew my neighbor, that's not a value of his at all. And I think, here I am. I have a PhD in theology. I teach the truths of the Christian faith for a living. And I act like an insecure junior hire when my my neighbor comes around the corner. It's just amazing that we, we can know these things but not internalize them, not really see them take root in our lives. So we've got to make sure this is something we claim and live in every day of our lives and then live up, as Paul says, to what we've already attained. So the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of Christ-like living is not to accomplish anything that Jesus has already accomplished. It's to live up to what we've already attained, Paul says in Philippians. That's what we're after. You know, my daughter, we adopted my oldest from Taiwan when she was eight. Oh, I think I have pictures of my family. Here's a little quick picture of my church. That's my family, yes. Oh, that's my amazing. That's my church family. I wanted to show you them too. Those are the people who take care of my family if I die. That's my church family. We've got to be rooted in the church people. But this is the family I live with every day. That's my incredible wife and my, my daughters and my sons. But my daughter that I have my arm around there on your left is Caroline. And we adopted Caroline when she was eight from an orphanage in Taiwan. And, and we brought her home, and she had an outward swag that was just amazing. I mean, when you, when you grow up as an orphan, you, you learn to, to act like you've got the world figured out. She walked around Taipei. I called her the mayor. That was my nickname for her. She walked around. But she's very confident. But, But deep down, we can all have these deep insecurities, right? And so I'll never forget it. The first week we had her home, she was with us for a few days, and then we were going to church. And we explained to her that we were going to church just for a few hours, and we would come back home, and we were going to do that every week. And we were waiting in the car for her, and she was taking the longest time, and she finally came out, and she had her arms full of just about everything that was important to her that she was able to carry. Her favorite stuffed animals, some food, a change of clothes, everything she could literally carry with her arms. She was walking out to the car with it just to go to church for a couple of hours. And she loaded up the back seat with all these possessions. And we tried to explain again, honey, we're coming home. This is forever. We're not dropping you off anywhere. We're family now. This is your home now. This is where you're always going to come back. We're just going away for a little while. And she gave us this look like, "Ah, I'm not going to take any chances. And then the next week, same thing. As much as we tried to explain, she came with her arms laden of all the things she didn't want to leave behind if she never came back. And it took about six months before her arms were finally free and she just had some stuff in her pockets. And eventually even her pockets didn't even need to be full anymore. And now she goes to church helping little kids in our children's ministry drop all the things they think they need. When they have Jesus. And I feel like Caroline coming out to that car so often in my life. I'm carrying and managing and manipulating everything in my life so I can feel secure and significant. But when we find who we are in Jesus, we can drop all those little security blanks. And walk in humble confidence taking god at his word that we're forgiven and we're righteous and we're adopted and then we can lead with a kind of humble confidence where it's not about us and that's the most freeing thing you're no longer controlled by everybody's latest opinion and the latest trends and what you have to do to be cool now but you can lead out of hearts set free as forgiven children who are just helping other people Wash Jesus' feet with their tears. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you that in him we're free and forgiven and righteous and yours. Thank you for the glorious truths we've been singing this weekend. And Lord, I'm so grateful for the incredible talent that you've given these musicians. And Lord, I'm grateful that their talent isn't what's most important for them or for us but their hearts before you as they lead us before you lord help us to know who we are but most of all help us to know who you are and help us to make knowing you as our primary passion and goal in life and we pray these things in the matchless and mighty name of our savior jesus amen